Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Every executive and every entrepreneur will face moments of truth. Moments when their skill is judged, when their worth is determined. When the powers that be will cast their votes and determine if your project or company lives or dies. Barry Diller was facing one of these moments. The media titan was in a screening room, presenting a new alternative sitcom to a group of executives. It was not going well. But when you're watching something with a group of people and you're involved in it and they're seeing it for the first time, you laugh a lot. I mean, partly out of pride and partly because you're almost like daring everybody else not to laugh. Apart from Barry and the creator of the show, nobody was laughing. The only two people laughing in a room of like 10 people. The tension in the room was palpable. Barry had already ordered 13 episodes, and everybody agreed it was a mistake. Well, is there any way to get out of this? Is there any way? This is a disaster. We can't even put this on the air. Barry was the CEO of the newly founded Fox Television Network. Back then, it was the gutsy alternative network, a challenger to the establishment. Well, we were the fourth network, so we had to not be like the other three. The only thing we should do is be an alternative to the three networks. Barry wanted to write his own rules. He wanted to be alternative. What was this alternative show that Barry was so convinced would be a hit? Probably the most successful series in the history of television, The Simpsons. Barry Diller greenlit what is now the longest-running sitcom in the history of television. He brought us Homer, Marge, Bart, Lisa, and Maggie, and of course, Itchy and Scratchy. And I would argue that Barry's reaction to this challenge, the way he almost revels in his ignorance, is the hallmark of his career. He thrives at the bottom of a steep learning curve. All my life, the only things that interest me are things that hadn't been done. I learned really early that, you know, you are best when you know nothing. I mean... You know, you have your life experience or who you are and all of that, but you're best off in situations where there are no markers. Many of the iconic entrepreneurs that I've met start out in the same position, at a point of supreme ignorance. What sets them apart is not their mastery of any given field, but the speed at which they zip up a learning curve. They have no baggage or ingrained habits. They're naive and therefore nimble. And if you can turn your naivete into an asset, I'd argue you stand a better chance at scaling a business than any of your competitors. In fact, I believe no one can truly claim to be a master of scale. I believe we are all, at best, infinite learners. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, 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 I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nothing. 
nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made it. Just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, investor at Greylock, and your host. I believe that no one can truly claim to be a master of scale. The most successful scalers are actually just infinite learners. This may sound rich coming from the host of Masters of Scale. It's right there in the title. And in the past episodes, I've called Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg a masterful leader and Google's Eric Schmidt a master of innovation. I stand by those assessments. But I would add one caveat none of us actually reaches a steady state of mastery. We're all constantly learning on the job. If Cheryl had ever said, I've mastered this whole leadership thing, then I would argue that's the moment her stellar trajectory would turn south. Infinite learning is a job requirement for scale entrepreneurs. And that's because almost every scalable idea forces you to grapple with an emerging phenomena. Everything around you is changing, your business, your market, your team. And you can't turn to any one expert for help because there are no experts. And depending on your personality, you may find that exhilarating or terrifying. Some people have a fear of the blank page. Barry has precisely the opposite problem. He's repelled by the faintest mark on the page, by anything that's preordained. I think the best thing that you can ever have is a clean piece of paper, you know? So you have a clean piece of paper, and in the truest sense of clean, meaning nothing is sacred, you get to just start. I wanted to talk to Barry Diller about this because he embodies the idea of an infinite learner. You probably know him as a media titan, but you might just be surprised by how many media conventions he created. He reinvented television networks and then movie studios. He revolutionized home shopping. Then he bought up a startling number of internet properties. Today, as chairman and senior executive of Interactive Corp, he owns stakes in travel services, dating apps, and new media sites. Ever heard of Expedia? That's his. Ditto for Tinder and OkCupid. Also niche dating sites like Plenty of Fish and Black People Meet. Those are Diller specials. 
The Daily Beast, Vimeo, College Humor, his, his, his. You can hardly use the internet these days without encountering one of Diller's properties. So how did Barry make the leap from media mogul to internet mogul? That's a big question that gets to the very heart of infinite learning. And we're going to see how Barry made that leap over the course of two episodes, which also happen to follow the arc of modern media. Barry's career started in the mailroom at the William Morris Agency. You may think you've heard this Hollywood legend before. He works hard, he stands out, he gets some big wigs' attention, but that's not quite how it played out. I thought I would just soak it up in the hallways. But what I discovered while all of the people in the mailroom were basically sucking up to agents so that they could get to be on their desk and then fastest track possible to be an agent. Barry, on the other hand, had no interest in becoming a talent agent. And this is where his story diverges from the other fabled Hollywood execs. Barry ignored the people at William Morris and focused instead on the neglected little file room, roughly 30 by 50 feet across. There was this room, and it was the file room. The file room. In such days, there were file rooms with file cabinets and paper. And it literally covered the history of the entertainment business, because William Morris had been in business since 1898 or something. And so I spent three years reading from A to Z. You heard that right. Three years. So I got the entire, truly, history of the entertainment business through that process. This didn't exactly endear Barry to his coworkers. They several times said, well, you should leave if you don't want to be an agent. And I said, well, who said that? And they said, well, your body language seems to indicate it. I think a few times they were thinking of throwing me out. But I did last three years, and, and it was my school. By the way, Barry actually dropped out of college for this quixotic three-year course in the filing room. It's an extreme version of a story that I often hear from scale entrepreneurs. They're not always full-fledged autodidacts like Barry, but they always show flashes of independence. They're not always suited to school. Sometimes they learn by doing. Sometimes they learn by reading. Sometimes, like Barry, they go back and forth between the two. And this cycle of reading and doing tends to accelerate. It may even suck them in like a vortex. They'll ask, well, what's the most important thing for me to learn right now? I'll go learn that. Drew Houston, the founding CEO of Dropbox, got sucked in the same kind of reading-doing vortex while he was studying at MIT. He told me about it earlier this year. It really started when I worked on my first company. It's called Accolade. It was doing online SAT prep. And then I realized it was very clear that I had everything down when it came to building the product, or at least the engineering and, and, and getting something basic out to market. But then I realized that I did not know anything about sales or marketing or financing a company or managing people. And the list gets pretty long pretty quick and, and not a lot of time to learn it. So there's one summer there where I remember I go on Amazon, I type in sales, marketing, strategy, all these things, all these different topics, and just buy the top one or two rated books and just crank through them. But now when I read a book that I think is going to be really influential or, or I really enjoy, I'll actually write down notes. I'll, I'll study it like a textbook. 
And do you still use the reading technique today? Yeah, for sure. I do that a lot. And actually, I make I make the team do it. So I make my leadership team. We, we pick a book and read it for every – we do a, a, a leadership team offsite every quarter and then a broader kind of top 100 offsite twice a year. One of the top staff picks at Dropbox is a book called Competing Against Luck. I'd tell you to buy it, but if you're an infinite learner, you probably have your own reading list to power through and more power to you. In any case, Barry Diller emerged from his exceptionally long reading phase ready to do something. He didn't know what until a friend called him with an irresistible opportunity. As he describes what happened, I want you to notice how Barry calls out the role of serendipity in shaping his career. He'll do that many times in this episode, and he's highlighting not just the role of luck, but your willingness to be lucky as an entrepreneur. Whenever Barry refers to one of these serendipitous moments, we will play this sound. My closest friend, Marlo Thomas. Marlo Thomas is an American actress best known for starring in the TV series, That Girl. Was dating a young executive at ABC. Everything is serendipity. And he was moving to Los Angeles from New York. He was kind of up and coming, rising little lower middle management guy at ABC. And he was coming to L.A. to be, I think, the vice president of current West Coast programming. And he asked me to be his assistant. Barry was no more interested in being an assistant than he was in being an agent. But television was a wide-open opportunity to learn. I've always believed you should get, of whatever your interest is in, get on the widest road, not the narrowest road. And television was certainly a pretty wide road. And I was fascinated by all parts, but certainly television. And I said, yes. And then, of course, this is the serendipity of life, which is the day, literally the day that I left William Morris, uh, they fired the czar of programming of ABC. And they reached down and they picked my guy to become the head of all programming running basically ABC. ABC was the third network, and it was the hip-shooting network. It would try almost anything. It was also kind of run like a candy store. If you wanted responsibility, you just took it. Barry seized the opportunity to buy movies for ABC. Right off the bat, he was negotiating movie rights with some of the giants of old Hollywood. I actually, Daryl Zanuck, I was, I was actually negotiating with Daryl Zanuck, trying to buy the good movies from Fox as against the movies he wanted to sell. You know, the word mogul was invented was for those guys, the founders, basically, of the movie business. They were on their last legs. In the midst of these negotiations, Barry was wondering why there was such a stark divide between TV and movies. Aren't they all in the business of telling stories? Then he had a revelation that changed the course of TV history. It's the kind of idea you can expect from an infinite learner, someone who spent a lot of time learning everything they can on a topic and then using it to question everything. I started to think, you know, all television at that time were series, either comedies or dramas, and in both forms, everything was present day. In other words, those series would go on for seven years. Lucy still lived in her same apartment. She never moved. Everything was in present time. There was all middle. There was no beginning. There was no end. And I thought, you know what? Why don't we tell stories that have a beginning, middle, and end? like they do in movies. And why shouldn't television do that? 
There was no shortage of reasons why television shouldn't do that, and Barry's colleagues were quick to rattle them off. For one, the never-ending stories on TV shows like I Love Lucy meant never-ending revenue. Why cut a story off just as audience are getting to know and like the characters? And then there were the risks of standalone stories with a beginning, middle, and end. How do you keep costs from ballooning on each original production? You have to hire new writers, cast new actors, design new sets, and create new promotional campaigns. And suppose you get every one of those steps right and create a hit. You start from scratch and run through that minefield again. As you've probably gathered, starting from scratch is precisely what excited Barry and precisely what made industry veterans shudder. Not everyone has this insatiable appetite to learn. Most people like to work with the tried and true. So when Barry pitched the idea of a movie of the week, a movie made specifically for TV, his colleagues balked. It just wasn't television, or so they thought. Remember Barry, despite his youth, had studied 75 years of entertainment history. Years and years before, at the very beginning of television, with things like Playhouse 90 and Studio One, they did do that, but it went away and series, film series replaced everything than live television. In any event, so we came up with this idea of doing the movie of the week, which was putting on a movie every week. We decided it should be 90 minutes, not two hours, uh, because two hours was too long a attention span, I thought, at the time. And, of course, everybody thought it would fail because they said, well, this isn't television. So why was Barry entrusted to launch this wildly new form, the TV movie? He had a distinct advantage. No one believed his idea could possibly work. What I find so interesting about this story is that it explodes the conventional myth of where disruption occurs. We imagine young entrepreneurs rolling their eyes at the industry's biggest players and attacking their businesses from the outside. I often encourage young entrepreneurs to play the outsider's advantage. Don't even bother to join an established company and reinvent. Just start from scratch. It's easier, but there are exceptions to that rule. Equally disruptive ideas can emerge from big established companies. They come from innovators embedded within the company. You might call them entrepreneurs. They tend to carve out a little fiefdom for innovation. They sell their fresh ideas across the organization, winning over colleagues and securing a budget faster than a startup founder can say, angel investor. Alexa Kristen is a prime example of one of these entrepreneurs. She's the media innovation chief at GE. She invents branding campaigns for a company that's been a household name since the late 1800s. So how does she find a fresh take on a 125-year-old brand? You can't come in and just, you know, break down walls destructively. Respect what's been created, but don't be afraid to tear it down where it needs it. And I think that is so vitally important in the way someone who's new in their career really should think about their overall mindset and approach to their job. Be respectful, be empathetic, but don't be afraid to question and to ask, is there a different way? And believe it or not, it kind of is that simple. Be respectful, be empathetic, and don't be afraid to ask, is there a better way? This could be the manual for entrepreneurs and infinite learners everywhere. Barry embodied this notion of learning everything and questioning everything. But the respect part? That wasn't necessarily part of his personal playbook. 
Barry has no trouble squaring off against his older, more experienced colleagues. I mean, just listen to him fire off shots at his elders. This is just a sampling of one-liners we pulled from a 90-minute interview. He was, first of all, a rotten executive, an endless story I could tell you of manipulation. I couldn't stand him. 20th Century Fox was a dog of dog of dog movie studios. It was even worse than Paramount when I got to Paramount. Now, by the way, it was a con- he was a con man. I mean, he was a boil man, wildcatter, con man. By the way, I've never had an interview that had this many feisty quotes on the cutting room floor. You can hear the full-length interview and all of its feisty glory later in the season. But you don't have to be all fire and sharp elbows to change a company from within. Sometimes you can find a frictionless path to disruption simply by drawing no attention to yourself at all. And this is what happened to Barry as he pitched his first big idea, the movie of the week. If actually anybody thought it would work, why in God's name would they give responsibility to a 23-and-a-half-year-old person? And so... This very unique thing happened, which is I had total control over making these movies and total control how to advertise them, which was something nobody ever really did in television. But I knew you had to advertise because it was different every week. You had to tell people in any event. So we started making them and they went on the air and they were just this from the first hour of the first day, smash. Mm -hmm. And as I say, I got to do it only because everyone thought it would fail uh, and uh, they'd get rid of this fairly aggressive kid in the process. And so the TV movie was born. Barry quickly followed upon that with another innovation, the multi-part miniseries, or what he then called the novel for television. If you're going to want to tell the story of not a beginning, middle, and end play or script or movie or whatever. But if you want to take it from books, you know, you can't do it in much less 90 minutes. You can't do it in two hours. It needs to breathe more. And we called it the novel for television. Novels for television, what we now call miniseries, were also an instant sensation. ABC's first miniseries, QB7, starred Anthony Hopkins and won six Emmys. The second, Rich Man, Poor Man, won four Emmys and four Golden Globes. And before he moved on, being an infinite learner, you know that's coming soon, Barry secured the rights to create the genre-shaping, era-defining miniseries roots. This epic eight-part story about slavery in America smashed every broadcast viewership record in the history of television. 85% of American homes watch at least one of the episodes. To this day, 40 years later, the finale remains the third most watched television episode of all time. Clearly, Barry's career was taking off. There was just one problem. With each success, the novelty wore off. Barry was losing interest. Fast. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. 
Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You'd write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. What did that then mean next for you? Well, actually, it, it, <laughs> it meant next that I got promoted out of my competence. By the third year, we had expanded from one night to three nights. We were making 75 movies a year. Then started with the novels for television. So I was, you know, really busy. But by the way, then another two years or so passed. And I'm not a good steward, meaning I really get excited through the difficult stuff and building it. And then when it's kind of there, I'm just less interested. Here, I have to interject and say, I've heard this language before. And if you're a Masters of Scale listener, so have you. It turns out a lot of CEOs are infinite learners. And this means they lose interest fast. I really get excited through the difficult stuff and building it. And then when it's kind of there, I'm just less interested. So I guess the management of ABC saw that and they promoted me to run series television, which was essentially the commodity of television. And I, I failed. I mean, I didn't get thrown out, <laughs> but I was failing because I truly didn't know how to do that. If there's no learning, for me, I mean, I'm asleep. Yeah. I'm literally, you know. Uh, and the times in my life when I've been in that situation, I've been of utterly no value. I've absolutely, absolutely, I've been of absolute negative value. Strengths and weaknesses tend to go together. When infinite learners get bored, their performance tends to crash. That's certainly true of me. One of the things I actually have said about myself is, I'm a bad employee. And what that means is if I go to work and do the same job, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I kind of don't care about my performance. I need to feel challenged that I'm learning the job every day. Otherwise, I tend to lose focus. Barry is even more extreme. The way he puts it, his brain just ceases to function. By purpose or by temperament, I'm only interested in those things where I haven't figured it out. And... And I really do think that however it happened, that when I was presented <laughs> endlessly with things I didn't understand, the only thing I could do, because I'm, my brain is slower and, no, I mean, it, it, and, and is more literal, and therefore my process is, is I have to get it down to its tiniest particle or else... I can't come in and understand an equation, actual, if you even put it in equation terms, unless I de-equation it. 
I, I can't pick it up. So I'm forced by lack of brain matter. I am forced to no, I'm I'm not I'm not <laughs> saying it for it's true to break it down as low as hardly low as I can get it, and only then, and that's learning, and that's real. That is joyous work to me, is getting through those layers down to something. And then once I'm down there, once I actually am at the very, very base of it, I can actually start to do something good. I can totally relate. For example, I was a pretty good employee at one of my earliest jobs as a product manager at Fujitsu. But once I understood the technology and knew how to manage the product team and run through all the QA checkpoints, I struggled to pay attention. The way I solved for that is I drank coffee, a lot of coffee. And if you find yourself drinking a lot of coffee just to stay interested, you'd better start looking for the exit. Fortunately for Barry, a well-placed friend once again showed him the way out. And again, luck weirdly comes. This I'm now 31, 32, 31 or 2. And the owner of Paramount, Gulf and Western, called Charles Bludorn, who was the great industrialist of the 60s and 70s, and Charlie bought Paramount. And I'd gotten to know him because I was this person who bought movies. And when Charlie bought Paramount, he came to ABC to sell these movies. And I said, you made terrible movies. We're not buying your library. He and I had a really great, fun, tendentious relationship, but over, like, I guess, five, six, seven years. And he, at various times, said to me, you have to come to Paramount, you have to, you should run our television. And I would say, no, I'm not doing that. No, no, no. One day he calls me and he says, I want to make you chairman and chief executive of Paramount. I had no, zero experience in theatrical motion pictures. And it wasn't like I said, oh, yeah. I thought, I don't know that I should, I don't know that I should do that. It wasn't the failing part. It was, I hated every day. So I thought, okay, I'll go be chairman of Paramount. And I did. And that's what happened to me. First, I got promoted into incompetence. Yep. And then I went to Paramount. So that was a great challenge. That was new and fresh and different. And I could be contrarian again. Barry's resume alone made him a Hollywood misfit. At 32 years old, he was the youngest and least experienced executive ever to run a studio. His background in television gave him a strange perspective on the industry. At that time, TV people did not become movie people. It was like getting recruited into Major League Baseball by way of ballroom dancing. He was right where he wanted to be, an insider regarding the whole industry as if he were an outsider. I was the first person from television to come into the movie business. In later years, one by one by one by one, almost everybody came from television because television was, first of all, the more creative medium, uh, interestingly enough, and had much more actual story discipline in certain interesting ways than, you know, the tired old hoary movie business. Barry's competitive advantage was what he called story discipline. He learned it from his days at ABC that whatever medium you're working within, you're essentially in the business of selling stories, not stars, not flashy productions, stories. For Barry, that meant the green light process would begin and end with a screenplay. 
and not long into his tenure at Paramount, an unusual screenplay landed on his desk. It had no stars attached to it, and no roles for stars, no big budget effects. Barry loved it. So Stanley Jaffe, a producer, calls me and says, I have a script for you. I said, fine. He sends it over, uh, and I read it, and I say, this is a delight. We're making this movie. The delightful movie was The Bad News Bears. If you're too young to remember, it's about a little league baseball team that's god-awful. The Bears have a nearsighted pitcher, an overweight catcher, a chain-smoking alcoholic coach played by the master of scowl, Walter Matthau. The coach is so desperate to turn his team around, he does the unthinkable. He puts a girl on the team. Oh yes, a girl. Welcome to the 70s. Amanda Wurlitzer became the Bears' new pitcher, and you'd better believe you're gonna root for her and all of the other Bears. It's the classic underdog story, but there was another underdog story playing out behind the scenes. Paramount at the time was a mess. There's seven movie companies. Paramount was number seven. We made horrible movies. Everything was awful. As for Barry, he got about as much respect as Amanda Wurlitzer. He came from TV, and by his own account, he had no idea what he was doing. But for Barry, and so many infinite learners, that's a happy place. So you go to Paramount, which has a terrible movie library, has a bad position relative to creation of movies. What was your go-in theory about- I had none. You had none? Just like, okay, I'll do this rather than that? No. So what's an out-of-depth young executive to do? Prove everyone wrong, for starters. It wasn't until I got into it and saw how awful it was, how mismanaged it was, how crazy the process was, that I got excited because I just thought, there's a whole other way to do this. Barry would eventually turn this troubled movie studio into a hit machine. He would greenlight films that would change Hollywood. When the Bad News Bears script first landed on his desk, he simply declared... We're making this movie. In any other studio, that would trigger a wave of cautionary questions. Who will direct it? Who will be the star? And slowly, the project will gain momentum as they attach big names to the project. Barry dismissed all of these decisions as mere packaging. The story came first. It was a process driven by his own instincts. You know, it's great luck if somebody just hands you a script. And it's, I mean, it's happened probably 10 times in my life out of thousands of projects. Anyway, we didn't have a process at Paramount. It took me two years to get this process together to actually manufacture movies rather than just depend upon being lucky enough to have it fall through the transom for you. You know, we had one good movie and then all of these turkeys, and then slowly we were getting it right. Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Raiders, etc., Allow me to interject here with a few other movies from Paramount Pictures' glory days. They released The Warriors, Beverly Hills Cop, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, and The Search for Spock, Friday the 13th, Airplane, The Elephant Man, Flashdance, Footloose, Trading Places, Top Gun, and Crocodile Dundee. For the next seven years, we were number one in the movie business. And, and it was, you know, it was because we picked our own path. I want to dig a bit deeper into this notion of building a process around your instincts. On the one hand, it sounds like there isn't much of a process to Barry's work. He sees the script, he likes it, boom, there's your movie. On the other hand, he has to scale those instincts across an organization. You have to go from, 
I know it when I see it, to I know it, I see it, and I can teach you to see it too. And that's when Barry gets to his favorite part of the learning curve, defining a process that seems almost impossible to define. Barry said something you'll almost never hear in the freewheeling, move fast and break things culture of Silicon Valley. And I love process. I had to ask him about this. Now, the, actually, the process part, this may be one of the things that's interesting, kind of difference between early stage Silicon Valley companies and, and the importance of a good product and media. But process is normally a vaguely bad word, uh, you know, kind of here in Silicon Valley. What do you mean by process? Oh, I mean, I mean, I like an iterative process. I'm, I'm so words, learning. Yeah, well, we've talked about it. But, yeah. but I have one of my closest friends who's great, great wealth. He can't stand process. Whenever something has happened with one of the companies I've been involved in, he would say, sell it. And I said, what do you mean sell it? He said, sell it. Why you do what? Once it's this, sell it. Ah, it, it, it's like goes. It, it, it's like a dagger to my heart. I am the opposite of that. I like the period from here when it is either a mess or it's brand new to here when it's been you know realized in one form or the other. That process mm-hmm. and all the things that that means, which is making mistakes, course correcting to this, doing that, and all that gutsiness I love. And that, to me, and that is process. What I realized in the interview is that when Barry uses the word process, he means it differently than the way we say it in Silicon Valley. In my circles, process means bureaucracy. To Barry, process means everything we talk about on the show, the ideation and pivots and learning and growth that allows a company or idea to come into the world. You can pick pretty much any point in Barry's varied career as a media mogul to see this mysterious process in motion. But I think one of the most telling examples is the moment he made the leap from movies back into television. Barry had this crazy idea of launching a new television network, an idea that makes inventing the TV movie look like pocket change. The big three networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS, had dominated media since the invention of television. Keep in mind, this is the mid-80s, the early days of cable TV and long before YouTube or Netflix. The presumption was that the three networks had a lock-in, especially on primetime TV. What evidence did Barry have that viewers were pining for something different? He had no evidence, aside from his own instincts. He didn't even intend to pitch the idea, but a passing comment caught the interest of a heavyweight gambler, the media mogul Rupert Murdoch. I said, look, I've always had this thing of starting a fourth network, which everyone, of course, thinks is crazy. And he said, that's great. Let's do it. I said, well, huh? What? <laughs> yes. And he said, that, that, that would be great. And I, not even on half that page, I scribbled down some, you know, actually numbers of what I thought it would cost. And on that basis, Rupert Murdoch borrowed a billion and a half dollars. We bought the Metromedia television stations, and 18 months later, we started Fox Broadcasting. So they make a billion and a half dollar bet on a new network, Fox. And incidentally, Fox was not known for any political viewpoint in those days. 
It was a brand new TV network that had no founding vision other than it wasn't ABC, NBC, or CBS. It would be the alternative network, which raised the question for Barry. What does alternative actually mean? As Barry was thinking about this idea of being alternative, a project hits his desk that brought this idea completely into focus. Once again, the word serendipity comes to mind. One day, a project comes into Fox, and it's called Not the Cosbys. Now, at that time, Bill Cosby is the biggest star. He had the most successful program on television, Bill Cosby, who we now think of otherwise. Yes. He was the number one show on NBC. This was a series about a family as against this Huxtable family of perfectness. This was a really rottenly, noisy, unpleasant family, which became married with children. So here's where the process begins. He finds a counterpoint to conventional wisdom. Let the other networks have their sweet, smug family shows. He'll make married with children. And now he wants to bring more of those irreverent, noisy shows to the market. And it was as alternative as you couldn't be more alternative. And it was our first big success. That was the vein. And I've always believed when you find a vein, thicken it any way you can. This, of course, is where The Simpsons came in. And you might think that after greenlighting The Simpsons, Barry could greenlight any show he'd like. On the contrary, he fights, he fights, he fights, he fights. He fights to create a signature style that no other network can imitate. An infinite learner will never look at a competitor and say, let's hedge our bets and copy that. They'll break down what worked, the warm family sitcom, and take a hard turn in a new direction. The rotten, noisy, irreverent family sitcom. And with each hit, they create the taste by which they're relished. And anything short of that, in Barry's opinion, isn't worth trying. The principle to me is you can't cheat that. You know, everybody tries. I think in that there are no shortcuts. And I think that also that the principle that is tied to that is exhaustion is when creativity starts. If you put people in a room, you take them past their endurance level. And that can come in the third hour or the 24th hour or 15th or whatever, but it does come. That moment, which is what I think is breaking again it down and down and down, is the beginning of something that's a value. And I think it's very important to recognize to, you can't relax in it because it's frustrating. Time is very frustrating. But to at least have some equanimity about, about that. And it took us a while to find out something that seemed so obvious. A fourth network, so obvious, and given the average household can now flip through 190 channels, it was a rather long overdue idea when you think about it. There's just one problem for Barry. Once an idea seems rather obviously good, guess what? He gets bored again. Only this time, he wasn't just bored with his job. He was bored with the entire business of storytelling. I decide after eight years at Fox that I'd now been running movie companies for 18 years, television companies. And if I never saw another script, I would be a happy person. Think about what Barry is saying here. If there's one thing he knows at this point in his career, it's how to spot a good script. He can scale a whole media empire from that finely honed instinct. 
And yet here he is, at the height of his career, saying he never wants to see another script again. I know a lot of serial entrepreneurs who seek out fresh challenges, but usually within an adjacent industry. If you look at the arc of my career, from building an online dating site, to PayPal, to LinkedIn, you'll see I have a particular fascination with network effects. How can I create an online network for dating, payments, or jobs that adds value with the addition of each individual user? Networking in the digital age is just my thing. Barry, on the other hand, is ready to take a leap into a wildly new field, which means he will also have to tackle a new learning curve that very few entrepreneurs survive. For the first time, he witnesses a user interacting with a screen, not just passively viewing content, but engaging with content, shaping the content. He is transfixed. Can you imagine how exciting it is to go from understanding a screen and being probably, I mean, a lot of other people understand narrative and screens, but God knows I did. Yes. To go into, huh? Yes. Well, it's the blank page, right? Absolutely. Right. So oh, like my God. A new Blankest blank page. of blank page. Yes. So what was this incredible user experience that would force Barry to question everything he's learned? And can he really fill this blankest of blank pages with a sensible plan? He's an infinite learner. He has no choice but to try. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Dan Kedmi, Chris McLeod, Jenny Cataldo, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music and sound design is by the Holiday Brothers. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Saida Sepieva, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, and Stephanie Kent. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. Come on, come on.